You're listening to Privacy Files, the podcast that makes privacy approachable for businesses and consumers alike. This episode is brought to you by Anonymy Labs, makers of MySudo, the world's only all-in-one privacy app, and Sudo Platform, the cloud-based platform companies turn to for seamlessly integrating privacy solutions into their software. Welcome to episode number six of Privacy Files. I'm Rich. And I'm Sarah. And welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back. In our last episode, Brian filled in for Sarah, and the two of us examined some privacy concerns in the metaverse. Today, we're kicking off part one of a two-part series on surveillance capitalism. We'll be reviewing one of the most important documentaries on privacy in the last decade, a documentary featuring Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff, author of the critically acclaimed book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Dr. Zuboff's work exposes the dubious mechanisms of our digital economy, revealing how our personal and private experiences are being surreptitiously hijacked by Silicon Valley and used as the raw material for extremely profitable digital products. Sarah, before we get to our analysis of the documentary, since we're starting to enter some heavier topics, I think it's important that we define a term we've been using since the first episode. Right. So I've mentioned a few times how I consider myself a normie and not everyone may be super clear on what that means. So I wanted to expand on that just a bit before we dive into today's topic. I was checking online to see if there was just a standard definition to give, but I found that normie can have several different meanings depending on which cohort or group you may find yourself in or talking about. Um, Not all were super positive, but for how we've used it here around the office and in the tech space, we've just sort of defined it as someone who doesn't know much about technology in a sense. I think technology, the privacy sector, all of those are just this subculture or subspace where if you're not constantly keeping your ear to the ground or enveloped in it, you can fall behind or lose understanding of a lot of terminology and what's going on out in this technological space. Um, It's kind of like boomers and that silent post-war generation, especially that post-war generation seems to have just been completely left in the dust of all this technology. And boomers and Gen X have been able to keep up if they've given it a solid effort to use smartphones, the internet and whatnot. But young millennials and Gen Zs have just sort of grown up in this technological world. So some things have just been easier to keep up with naturally for them. But beyond just having grown up with the internet or iPhones and smart devices, there's this sub layer beneath that. And it goes even deeper into these terms in the privacy sector and the tech world, being aware of what these data breaches and data leaks, privacy laws or what have you really mean. You can feel like you've got a grip on the latest and greatest tech gadget, but actually knowing what's going on behind the scenes of how these gadgets are developed and what laws and policies are in place what's coming down the pipeline or what these data leaks and breaches in the news even mean. I consider those to be more of the privacy experts, someone who's just got a better grasp on the subject. And those at the surface level who just know of these gadgets and use them day to day, not really aware of what's going on behind the scenes, those are the normies. Now, for me, I've worked in this privacy sector of the tech industry for a while now and having a dad highly involved in how the government's utilizing data and information I have a better understanding than the average normie. So I'm probably sort of this high-level, high-functioning normie. I've sort of got a foot in both doors. And I think it's honestly a great place to be because I have my views as an everyday consumer, but also have my awareness of these privacy and security concerns going on around us every day. So hopefully people can kind of learn to gauge where they are on this sliding scale of normie to privacy tech expert 
find where they need to learn more and even do more to better protect themselves and their families. Here on Privacy Files, we're going to start getting into these topics with lingo people may not understand. So I'm hoping to help bridge that gap and bring it down to a level that anyone on that sliding scale can understand what's being talked about and start sliding up that privacy expert scale naturally and comfortably. Like today, we're opening a file about surveillance capitalism, which honestly, when I first heard that term, I was a little nervous because it sounds intense and complicated, but there's a lot of great information out there when you find it to help explain and even show what surveillance capitalism means and how it affects us in a huge way every single day. And we'll even dive deeper into it over the next couple episodes as well, even diving into the Netflix docudrama Social Dilemma, which a lot of people are familiar with, but may not have made that connection to sur surveillance capitalism yet. So, Rich, I'm going to hand it over to you to kick us off with our part one of surveillance capitalism in our two part series. And speaking of opening a file, I think we, we need a sound effect for that. Ooh, there you go. Yeah, I. I for me, I think I have mixed emotions. It kind of felt a little spooky watching this documentary. It was also entertaining. It was incredibly fascinating. You see this, I guess, behind the scenes, this the workings of what's going on. You just think, wow, there's no way all of this can be true, but it it, it has to be. I mean, it really is. And so I, I think before we jump into, I guess, the review of the documentary, it's also good since we're in this um, mindset of creating some definitions that, you know, what is surveillance capitalism, at least at a high level? What are, what are we talking about? Yeah, obviously, as you mentioned, it, it sounds intimidating. But I started really first with capitalistic or the, the term capital um, capitalism. It is a, obviously it's it's a capitalistic type of thing. It's it's involved in uh, exchanging information, selling information in the free market. That's 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 pretty self-explanatory. But the surveillance part, I think, is what sets everything apart. And when you listen to the professor talk about how she defines surveillance, she says that it's not by accident. There's there's no arbitrary um, selection of this term. This is definitely by intent. And she talks about how the term surveillance means that things are happening, um, I guess, and through obfuscation, through uh, means of stealth, because the whole point is you don't really know what's going on. We're going to entertain you with something. We're going to distract you. And you're going to think that that value exchange is so enticing and so desirable that you're willing to overlook or not. You don't even know what's happening and you're okay that the data is just being sold and used or you're being manipulated because again, surveillance capitalism is 24 seven. And the more they get you engaged and, and brought into that, that um, matrix, maybe if I, if I dare use that term, that's, that's how they get the rich predictive values that they can sell on the open market. So, you know, to take some real world examples, think about walking into any Walmart, you've got security cameras positioned, you know, of course, throughout the store, they're recording all of your movements and they've got typically a security officer stationed in a control room who's using those cameras to monitor people's behavior, looking for suspicious activity. They will likely take a closer look if, if somebody appears to be doing something that they shouldn't be doing. And of course, the, the reason for this is to prevent theft. In the online world, at least outside the metaverse, which we covered in our last episode, uh, your behaviors are not just, they're not just behaviors in the physical sense. They're, they're behaviors that can actually be documented and software analyzes those behaviors to create fingerprints of you and then create these predictive models. 
And those predictive models can forecast what you will do in the next hour, in the next minute, tomorrow, and even to the extent that those who have that data can even manipulate your behavior. And we're, we're going to get into a little bit of that too in this episode. So every word you search for in a search engine like Google, every website you visit, every item you purchase on Amazon, every post you make on Facebook, every place you drive with that smartphone in your pocket or purse, these are behaviors that are immensely valuable to advertisers. So it's important you know, to make this distinction between surveillance capitalism and what scammers do. So the advertiser, for the most part, doesn't really care really about your name, phone number, email, social security number. Those are the basics when it comes to surveillance capitalism. Now, if you're, if you're a scammer, you probably want that information because you want to use that to commit identity theft or financial fraud. But if you are in the business of selling data and using that data, that's that rich information that comes after the fact, which obviously the professor talked a lot about in this documentary. And I think, uh, Sarah, you're going to uh, get into what that term is. Yeah. So I remember in the early 2000s hearing several times about this term digital exhaust and unwanted data or waste material. Um, and she calls this, this is the residual data. Um, but Google and big tech discovered, hey, this residual data is actually valuable and it's tradable. These waste materials have rich predictive data that they could sell and make a lot of money on. So quoting Professor Zuboff from this documentary, she says, we think that the only personal information that they have about us is what we've given them. The information that we provide is the least important part of the information that they collect about us. So what is the residual data? Like you mentioned, um, it's the digital traces we leave behind unintentionally. Things like spelling errors in your web search, which color shirts you prefer, prefer facial expressions. And what seems to be a huge tracer mentioned in this documentary is facial recognition from pictures you post. Family pictures we post have residual data where tons of data can be taken. It's not even really the picture itself that they're collecting. They're analyzing the face and the muscles of the face and to train these algorithms for facial recognition and even predictions of human behavior. They can use this data to predict our personality, our emotions, our political orientation, things we never intended probably to disclose, right? Not not only can they predict, but this means they can easily influence people as well, which we'll touch on with the uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal later in this episode. But yeah, people always say, she, she mentions in this documentary, I have nothing to hide. I like personalized ads. And these are just misconceptions we've been trained to think is normal. So we're not paying attention to what's really going on. So you've got this residual data being collected then the internet advertisements can easily be used in a very targeted and effective way. So what do you get with all of this? A completely new business model born in 2001 with Google called surveillance capitalism. Yeah. And again, the, some of these examples, um, how fast you drive, how fast you type, what we think, your political ideologies, your views, um, our hobbies, preferences, friends, spelling errors in your search terms, they mention which color buttons you prefer when you're clicking around on the internet. All this residual data they're using, as you said, just to train these models to identify key patterns of behavior that can be used by advertisers to sell us stuff or to predict future behavior possibly by governments. So she makes, you know, the professor Zuboff makes this very distinct 
definition, she classifies, okay, we have this data that most people think that they're providing, which is again, your phone number, your email address, all the basic information, but that to most advertisers is almost worthless today. Again, if you're a scammer, probably love that info, but if you're an advertiser and you're trying to sell stuff or you're trying to manipulate behavior so that people will purchase things, you want that surplus data, as you mentioned, that, that digital exhaust, because that's the information that can be used to forecast behavior. And, and it's also interesting, too, she mentions that when it comes to legislation in Europe, of course, in the United States, we're a little behind on that. The, the topic is really not about this behavioral data. It's Again, it's about the basic information. So it's very questionable whether the efforts that are going on on the regulatory side or even addressing this behavioral data, which that's where the, that's, that's where the key value is for advertisers. So, and professor Zuboff, she uses terms like undetectable, indecipherable, cloaked in rhetoric. That's the approach. And it's all designed to misdirect, obfuscate. And she mentions even just downright bamboozle all of us all the time. And I thought it was hilarious. Like right after the, that quote, there's this clip of Mark Zuckerberg on stage telling the audience that, quote, the future is private. Right. And at the same time, his lawyer was busy dealing with everything going that they are being sued for at the same time he's presenting this. Yeah, exactly. And she and she I think she makes the distinction that there's this public operation, which is, again, just your your typical personal information. But then there's the shadow operation that's taking all that behavioral data and they're saying one thing and they're doing another. And then proactive companies, you know, they're recognizing this shift, making privacy, I think, more of a core differentiator in their go-to-market strategies. And that's a great segue into this message from our sponsor. The global average cost of a data breach is nearly $4.5 million, but that's viewing it from a liability perspective. Today, privacy is a value proposition for software providers. When you develop a reputation for protecting customers' personal information, you don't just acquire new customers, you make them loyal. And Pseudo Platform is the world's premier cloud platform for providing developers with a menu of enterprise-ready SDKs and APIs that make integrating privacy solutions into your software so easy. Built for developers, by developers. From identity wallets and password managers to virtual cards and secure encrypted communications, Pseudo Platform has you covered. Go to market quickly with a privacy platform that is scalable, flexible, and secure. To learn more, visit pseudoplatform.com. That's pseudoplatform.com. Sarah, I made a special note as I was watching the documentary that Professor Zuboff, she uses the term behavioral surplus when referring to data streams, as you mentioned, filled with this rich predictive data. Uh, more data, she mentions, than is really required to, as they say, improve products and services. Uh, she says that sure, you know, some of that behavioral data, that rich behavioral data is used to improve service, but there's much more beyond that necessary level, uh, which is being used, it's collected, it's being analyzed, and it's predicting uh, preferences for special groups. And of course, then sold to, to advertisers. There's uh, related to that is, uh, I think a lot of people are aware of Facebook had this mass scale contagion experiment where they used subliminal cues in Facebook pages and news feeds that would influence offline real world behavior and emotions. So it was, I guess they were running, one group had more happy messages. The other one had more, I guess, sad messages. 
And, and it wasn't just offline. They also were impacting, I believe, um, words that were used in, in posts too, but it also it carried over into that offline world. And these findings were even published in scholarly journals. Uh, and the findings, as they wrote in these journal articles, uh, they said they could manipulate with subliminal cues in the online context to change real world behavior or real world emotion. And the finding, one of the other findings was they just flat out admitted we can exercise this power, these methods while bypassing user awareness. So on the topic of manipulating people. Yeah. Part of the documentary that I found interesting, there were several examples in this interview I was so intrigued by, but one that stood out was the Pokemon Go phenomenon. I was never into Pokemon growing up. And when this Pokemon Go trend came out, I was drowning in my first newborn. So it wasn't something I never, I, I just never got into it, but I was aware of it because it was all you heard about. Well, what I wasn't aware of was that companies like McDonald's and Starbucks, what have you, were buying into what's called lure modules. The game layered on top of the game wasn't designed to get you into a store or a restaurant to buy something, all paid for by the retail establishment. So instead of getting online click-throughs to a website, these companies were getting footfalls, what they call them. They were buying into this business model to have a Pokemon character show up in their store to create foot traffic. So people would buy their stuff while they were consumed and distracted, thinking they were just there catching some Pokemon in this game. So during this phenomenon I wasn't even involved in, I hadn't even thought about where these characters were popping up around town, but I totally see it now popping, you know, I just... I look back at it and I'm like, oh yeah, they were popping up in these establishments. So when you dig into Pokemon Go, of course, there's a link to Google, right? This all started with a man named John Hankey who had a company named Keyhole Incorporated. The name was actually an ode to the CIA's secret 1960s Keyhole spy satellite program, which pulled recon images for the military. So John Hankey told journalists that the inspiration for his company came from a cult science fiction novel where the hero taps into a program created by a central intelligence corporation called Planet Earth, which was a virtual reality construct designed to keep track of all the maps, weather data, architectural plans, and satellite surveillance stuff. Keyhole Incorporated had its roots in video game technology, but deployed with a program that stitched satellite images and aerial photographs into 3D computer models of the Earth that could be explored as if they were in a virtual reality game world. It was a groundbreaking product, but the only problem was their timing. It had launched just as the dot-com bubble blew up in Silicon Valley, but luckily for them in 2003, they were purchased by the very organization that inspired it, the CIA. So the CIA had its hands on the program for probably about a year, even using it to support U.S. troops during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Then in 2004, the same year Google went public, co-founders Brennan Page bought the company, CIA investors and all. So Google absorbed the company and Keyhole was reborn as Google Earth. John Hackey eventually became VP, Vice President of Product Management for the Google Geo Division, where he led the team responsible for creating Google Maps and Google Street View. And then in 2010, Niantic Labs was born in Google's downtown San Francisco office. Created by Niantic, 
Pokemon Go launched in 2016 in the US and it made a hundred million dollars in 20 days. That's how it blew up. So wrapping up this portion, Pokemon Go was this large scale experiment using remote control means to engineer and automate human behaviors and you had no idea. These types of processes have been disguised and engineered to create ignorance. Our ignorance is their bliss. And in keeping with that creepy theme, smart home devices. Yes. So they talk about the Nest security system. And I guess there was an engineer at one point that had opened it up and found a microphone built into it. Now, that was not found in any schematic that was included in the product box, so they weren't actually... It wasn't even in the instructions. Exactly. Right. So why was it in there? So there was a quote in the uh, documentary. It said, our business depends upon extraction of behavioral surplus, scale, scope, and action. That means voices recorded, conversations, what you're watching on TV, the music you're listening to, who's coming in and out of your house, whether or not you're shouting at each other over the breakfast table, she says. So all of the above and more, of course, has tremendous predictive value to, to advertisers. So it's all about selling convenience. So I, I saw the uh, they had a clip from the uh, Google Nest commercial and the quote in there was, what if the measure of it working was that you never had to think about it? And I just thought, okay, I mean, I, I, I see the, the cool side of it, but with the privacy glasses on, I go, okay, well, that's really creepy. Right. So there were two legal scholars at the University of London who analyzed the privacy policy of the, the Nest security device basically how we give our consent to these to these smart home devices when when we're when we're hooking them up and the what the findings are pretty fascinating so nest collects data they send data to third parties and then those third parties turn around and sell that data again to other third parties and the cycle just never ends no company and this is in that privacy policy no company takes responsibility for what the third parties might be doing with that data now, Nest says you can opt out, totally okay, but without that data, then the exchange is, well, we'll stop supporting the functionality of your thermostat and stop, stop upgrading. Stop upgrades, right. Yeah. Yeah, it just stops working. Yeah, <laughs> which it's just insane. So to further uh, investigate on this, so the two scholars discovered that based on this never-ending chain of all these third parties that don't take responsibility and they also just keep sharing all that information, the consumer would have to review an average of 1,000 privacy contracts in order to install just one Nest thermostat device. Jeez. That's that's just completely insane. And so, they know nobody's going to be able to do that. Yeah. Right? And again, like if we've mentioned before in Ignorance. past episodes, it's convenience too, right? right. It's just, wow, this is cool. I can, I can watch my home from afar. I can control yeah. the thermostat from my computer at work. And again, they're banking on your ignorance, just not being able to read thousands of contracts. Exactly. And so Professor Zuboff, she also asserts that the rise of surveillance capitalism, it started, uh, like as you mentioned, with the discovering of the surveillance dividend, as she says, back in 2002, 2003, 4-ish in, in that range in Silicon Valley, of course, starts with Google. And that fascinating story, too, that Google actually almost went out of business. And right at the end, they kind of had that light 
bulb on the, you know, on top of the head epiphany moment and say, oh, well, let's sell the information. So this surveillance dividend has kind of been this trend for the last 20 years where these venture capitalists and private equity firms are providing this money to companies that are producing this incredible amount of profit from selling information, this predictive behavioral data. Because the profit, of course, it, it's higher. Product development is easier. You don't have to build new to the world cars or anything of that nature. It's just buying and selling data. So there's higher market capitalization that goes along with that. We already have examples with Facebook and Google. They have just immense amounts of cash because of these lucrative revenue models. And you know, as I mentioned uh, about the cars, now the car companies that have been, especially in the United States, that have been kind of you know sluggish for the last couple of decades, now they're going, oh, well, forget the cars. Let's just sell the data. Right. And there's computers in the cars, all this sophisticated um, collection of data. And now the cars are connected in some cases to, to the internet. You've got Wi-Fi in the car. There's been examples, of course, of hackers that have proved in a controlled environment that they can take control remotely of a car based upon some of these kind of these vehicle assist devices. Yeah, they mentioned in the documentary, a car is a Trojan horse of data is what they called it. Exactly. And then uh, she, she rounds it out with the, uh, the topic of Android phones and how Android has kind of created this model to keep that phone as, as cheap as possible, if not give it away for free. Of course, if you get a two-year plan, here's the phone, you can have it. Well, why are they doing that? Well, of course, they're trying to generate that rich predictive data to sell. And as we've said before in the past, if the product is free, you are the product. So how do you protect yourself and prevent some of your data from being sold in this fashion? I think this is a perfect time for this message from our sponsor. Are you tired of big tech spying on you? MySudo is the world's only all-in-one app that gives you back control of your privacy. By creating digital profiles or pseudos, you can compartmentalize your online activities by setting up a unique phone number, email address, and handle for things like shopping, accessing free content, and using data apps. This breaks the data trail linking back to your personal info, thus reducing your digital exhaust. Each pseudo also includes a private web browser with ad and tracker blocker. Want to stop companies from sharing data related to your transactions and spending habits? Set up a MySudo virtual card and bring peace of mind that your transactions are secure and private. To learn more, visit MySudo.com. That's MySudo.com. Stay private. And that brings us to the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So there was a I guess before we get into it, so the Cambridge Analytica scandal essentially was, I guess, tens of millions of Facebook users' data was being sold to a third party, which was Cambridge Analytica, without the user's consent. And that was, I guess, the 2016 election? Yeah, I think that's the one it was. He, the, the whistleblower came out and was just like, we knew so much about so many individuals that we could understand their inner demons and figure out how to target their fear, anger, and paranoia and trigger those emotions and, and manipulate to click on a website, join a group, tell them what to read. What we found was they were even manipulating how people would vote. Not creepy at all, huh? Not creepy at all. So fast forward, uh, there was a California class action lawsuit that demanded to have that data that Facebook made available to Cambridge Analytica uh, to see if anyone in that group had been targeted and manipulated by that company. So 
the Facebook council representative, or I think it was one of the attorneys, or it might've been the whole team, but they, as they were arguing the case, they said, quote, anyone who gets on the platform and shares info has no expectation of privacy. So that was pretty interesting and in conflict with what Mark Zuckerberg has been saying, that privacy is the future and that now Facebook is cares. Yeah. He's busy saying the future is private while he's busy, you know, they're being sued by with Cambridge. Exactly. And so it's this uh, professor Zuboff talks about this difference between public operation and shadow operations. So in the public, yeah, we collect some of your basic info, but I don't really don't care about that. We care about all this biometric information and behavioral data. So we're not going to talk about that anyway, but that's the behavioral surplus. So most of that data that is valuable lives in that shadow, uh, that shadow operation bypassing our awareness. So, you know, where do we go from here? So Professor Zuboff, she issued a warning about governments using surveillance capitalism because that could be the next step if they're not using it already. Um, and they, they can use that tech against us. But if we resist this approach in the confines of the market economy, then we might not have to address it later in the context of some big brother scenario or authoritarian government that wants to use it to manipulate us and thus preserve democracy. Yeah, I think just sort of wrapping this up, Shoshana left it feeling, I guess, pretty hopeful in the way I felt at the end of it. In her last quote of the interview, she was saying, surveillance capitalism is only 20 years old and democracy is several centuries old. She says, I bet on democracy. So it does. I think it comes back to we've just been seeing these privacy laws and stuff that are sort of scraping the surface of my personal information, but it's about time they start digging in deeper, right? Getting into those residual, that residual data that is actually what they're going for and what means the most to us, I think is what we need help with now. I think, Sarah, we, uh, we unpacked a whole lot here. <laughs> a lot there. And I am excited for part two. My hope is that we've given everyone a better understanding of what's really going on and you know, doing it in a way that don't want to scare anybody, as we always say, but just kind of keeping you informed that there's a little bit more happening behind the scenes and just what that scale of operation really is. So ultimately, um, there's there should be just a, a better appreciation, I think, after we've gone through this for just the sizable risk to our privacy. Uh, and that's that's really what we're trying to get at here because we've opened this case file, we've set up the stage, we've given you a little bit of the background, and hopefully we've given you some some information to take that and and do what you can to help you protect yourself and your personal life. So with that said, Sarah, any closing thoughts as we wrap up? No, I think that was a great intro. And next time I'm excited to expand on this with the social dilemma. Oh, it's going to be fun. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. In our next episode, we will present part two of this two-part series on surveillance capitalism by reviewing perhaps the most well-known documentary on this topic, The Social Dilemma. It's a shocking look into how big tech attempts to manipulate and influence us, and it's told through the words of Silicon Valley tech experts. Until next time, don't forget, privacy is a human right. <laughs>